This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this May and is available for pre-order right now. My guests today, and that is plural, Clint Hill and his wife, Lisa McCuban Hill. Clint is a former Secret Service agent who was on the follow car in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. He ran to the presidential limo after shots were fired at the motorcade and covered Mrs. Kennedy and JFK with his body on the way to the hospital. He is the author of four books, along with his wife, Lisa, Five Days in November, Five Presidents, Mrs. Kennedy and Me, and My Travels with Mrs. Kennedy. It was such an honor to have both of them on my podcast. And now, without further ado, here's Clinton Lisa. There we are. Oh, all right. There. We, I got all I have all the books here and to include these over oh, here. Good for you. Thank I, you. Oh, oh, my goodness. Thank you. And thank both of you for uh, capturing this history and these memories and with such emotion. I mean, there are they are hard books to read because they're so emotional. Um, and I can only imagine what they were like to, to write and revisit all that. And I want to want to ask about that. And this is the newest one um, right here. And for Correct. those that can't see, it's my travels with Mrs. Kennedy. And the photos in here are just incredible, covering all those trips. And I mean, what an amazing time uh, to be a part of history. Uh, just incredible. But um, I want to start off, if you don't mind, I'm going to read... Uh, just a passage to kick this off. And then um, I want to get into how all this came about. The story of how all this came about is um, it, it, it's inspiring. So um, let me read this to, to cue it up for, for everybody here. And this is from five days in November. And it says, it makes no difference how old you are or what you have experienced. There are times in your life that affect you so deeply that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to erase them, your mind will never let the memories fade. For me, there were five days in November, 1963, when I was 31 years old that are seared into my mind and soul. In the blink of an eye, everything changed. And in the 50 years since, those days remain the defining period of my life. As fate would have it, the photos snapped by journalists, witnesses, and bystanders during those five days are like a scrapbook that is in my mind. I was thrust into the pages of history and I spent the majority of my life keeping silent about what I witnessed. Recently, however, I've come to realize that the grief I've held inside for half a century is shared by nearly everyone who was alive at the time, and that those days marked a defining period, not just for me, but for all of us. It's been a reluctant journey, but now, despite how painful it is, still to relive those days, I understand that my memories are important to history. And they certainly are. When you read this, no one has this perspective. So thank you so much for capturing this um but you guys met on another book that you were uh you were writing lisa and that was the kennedy detail so how did that initial uh connection between you guys happen and what was it first like to interview clint who hadn't really talked about this too much um and then it led to to all of these these uh these books and memories becoming what we have here today so what was that how did you guys get connected initially for that uh for that first book the kennedy detail and then how did the uh the next book come about from that well um well thanks so much jack for having us on your podcast um 
It was in 2009, and I was co-writing a book with another Secret Service agent named Jerry Blaine, who was a longtime family friend of mine. I actually went to my senior high school prom with Jerry Blaine's son, Scott. Um, So we'd known each other for a long time, and um, Jerry had been working on this book, and he couldn't get it published, and so he brought me along, and, um, and I really didn't know much about JFK, the assassination. Mm. Um, I was born in 1964, so I wasn't alive at that time. And um, so it was kind of a learning experience for me. And um, and so I in helping Jerry write the book, I said, you know, we need to talk to somebody who was there because Jerry had been on a different shift on the midnight mm. shift and wasn't in Dallas for the assassination. So he said, well, there's only one person to talk to, and that's Clint Hill but Clint doesn't talk to anybody. <laughs> and uh, Clint had been very reclusive. And um, since he retired from the Secret Service in 1975, and he had never talked about this, um, but somehow Jerry convinced Clint to talk to me. Um, Clint was very reluctant at first. And we set up a meeting in August of 2009 in Washington, DC at the Hay Adams Hotel. I mean, I remember it so vividly. I think we both do. And, um, you know, I was kind of intimidated because um, I had read about him and here he was, and he wasn't very forthcoming with information. And he only gave me two hours of his time and um, which he didn't really tell me anything that I couldn't have learned Mm. on the internet. Okay. Um, But I was a reporter. And so at the end I said, Um, You know, Mr. Hill, thank you so much. I might have some follow-up questions. Would you mind giving me your phone number? And that's when he made his big mistake. That was the big mistake I made, and I gave her my phone number. And she used it repeatedly. Never give a reporter your phone number. I I remember that. What? uh, (laughs) How long did it take you to call him after that? Did you uh, you start pestering him immediately? Oh, you know, I was calling him like every week. um, And I was living actually in Doha, Qatar at the time. So there was like a 12 hour time difference. And so I would call him for follow up. And, um, and his memory was so incredible, Mm -hmm. that I began to rely on him while we were finishing up this book, because he just had his, his memories were amazing. And um, and he would always follow it up with an email to make sure I got everything correctly because he didn't want me to make any mistakes. So um, he really helped a lot with that book, The Kennedy Detail. Mm. And then he came on the book tour with Jerry Blaine and me because, of course, everybody wanted to interview Clint Hill because he hadn't talked in 50 years. So um, that put The Kennedy Detail on the bestseller list. And we got to know each other very well through that. And, um, you know, he had shared a lot of other stories with me. And I said, you know, you should write a book about your time with Mrs. Kennedy. And what did you say? I'll never write a book. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be careful about saying that never word. I'll never write a book. So what, four or five books later? Here we are. Here I am. And by the way, we got married last year. I I sing congratulations. (laughs) I saw that. Congratulations, you guys. Amazing. Thank Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a wonderful journey, really, for for both of us. But initially, it was really difficult for Clint to speak yeah, well, about all. Very, this. very difficult. I, it was just too emotional. Yeah, and I hadn't talked to anybody, my family. We I that we didn't discuss it among the agents. 
The only time I ever talked about it was when I had to testify to the Warren Commission or when I had to write a memo for uh, Secret Service use. But other than that, I just never discussed it with anyone. Yeah. Here she was asking me questions I didn't want to have asked of me. Yeah. But uh, that, over time, turned out to be very beneficial because uh, within a year of that meeting, uh, we began to really put together a book that turned out to be Mrs. Kennedy and me. And uh, my verbalizing what was in my mind and what the memories I had really kind of, there was this kind of a weight being lifted off my shoulders and my back. Mm -hmm. I really felt better about everything. And then when we, that book was a success. It was uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. So we had to go out and publicize it. In so doing, I had a difficult time talking about it in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more I did, the easier it became. And the better I felt. So I started to realize, you know, if I talk about this subject and I give the information to uh, Lisa and we can put it on, on the paper, it's going to benefit me emotionally. Yeah, And it has. I was suffering from something that didn't even have a name until like the 1980s. They finally discovered a name for it called uh, PTSD, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disaster or syndrome. <laughs> disaster. And uh, it's just, I mean, I am just one of thousands who uh, suffer, from, suffer from that particular problem. People coming back from Afghanistan and mm-hmm. uh, Iraq, yeah. wherever there's been a, a mass situation of just unbelievable uh, horror. Yeah, horror. It affects the mind and the person that's been there and witnessed it or been part of it. It's going to affect them the rest of their life like it has me. Yeah. And you waited 50 years. I think people talk about it a little more openly now, especially when you're coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, those types of things. We have some uh, history and it's, and it's um, uh, a little more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, appropriate in these, those circles that are typically close-knit, like the Secret Service or Navy SEALs or Army Special Forces. And uh, now people talk about it a little bit more. And you waited 50 years. Uh, the guys coming back now uh, hopefully talk about it uh, in a way that's healthy uh, and productive. Of, um, uh, they don't wait. But hopefully, they don't wait fifty years. Hopefully, they'll listen to this. And if they haven't, if they've been thinking about speaking about something, maybe it'll make them uh, be able to to put it in the right context and use it as a positive, no matter how horrible it was, and uh, and move move forward from there. But you were that, you were in the army. For, were you in the army first? Is that do I have that right? Yes, I was in the army first before I was in the secret service. And you were uh, were you in intelligence? Counterintelligence. Ah, what did that entail back then? What years were you in the in the army? 54 to 57. 54 to 57. And 58, I entered the Secret Service. What did you, uh, in the Army, what were you, I mean, you're focused on? Uh, Counterintelligence. In uh, the I Soviet Union. I wear a uniform except for my training periods and the t- day that I was discharged. The rest of it, they had me in civvies, uh, 
I was assigned to the Denver office because of the uh, there was a military facility near there in which we were the U.S. government was manufacturing some material that they didn't want anybody to know about. And mm. We're very concerned about leaks and uh, infiltration because it was really the highest priority. Nerve gas is what it was. Oh. Nerve gas, and I, my, I was one of many who uh, ran investigations regarding that, and the personnel that were working there. Um, we had specialists, and it was very interesting, but it was kind of touchy too. Yeah. That, that sounds like pretty good duty for back then. You don't have to wear the uniform. Maybe you have a little, don't get to have to have yeah, the haircut. $300 a year for food and clothes. Hey, there you go. That's something. <laughs> That's something. And at what point do you, are you already aware of the Secret Service at this point? And how aware are you Are you of it? And when did you decide to then uh, either apply or how to get recruited or how did that work? Well, I became aware of it when President Eisenhower visited Denver because his wife, Mamie's mother lived there. Mm. Her name was Elvira Dowd. And uh, can, Mamie came out, she'd visit her mother and he did too, but then he went fishing and played golf and he had a heart attack, very serious one. And they put him in Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. Uh-huh. Well, so I was an army counterintelligence agent and we had some cross uh, contact with the people that were there with President Eisenhower, we got to meet some of the Secret Service agents. I was very impressed. Uh, So when it came time for me to leave the Army in 57, I thought, well, you know, that wouldn't be a bad choice. And so I put in my application and didn't take them too long to clear me, and they hired me in 58. And I've, re- I've read a little bit about your training. I love this uh, this part. This is from uh, from Five Presidents right here, which is all these books are remarkable. I think every American should have these on their shelves and not just have them on their shelves, but read them and then give them to their their kids that are in junior high, high school, because um, there's there's so much in here. And it's uh, it, it's history, but it's also so personal. But I love this uh, <laughs> this part on training. You say on September 22nd, 1958, I was given a badge, handcuffs, holster, gun, and ammunition, and officially sworn in as a special agent in the United States Secret Service. I was taken out to the shooting range at the U.S. Mint in Denver to make sure I could qualify, and that was it. There was no other immediate training except for reading the special agent manual. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no academy to go to. There's no, I mean, just, hey, here's the manual. Here's your gun. Here's your badge. Good luck. Everything was on the job. You learned on the job. Uh, I learned from a guy named Doug Duncan who just, recently passed away at 95 or years of age. Mm. And he was a magnificent uh, teacher, mentor. I really learned a lot from him. Yeah, that's amazing. That they, you know like Jack, that. they also, um, they gave him um, an intelligence test, right? Wasn't there some kind of intelligence well, in test? The art, yeah. And um, I would love to get my hands on that. I don't know. I mean, if we can still find those, but my opinion is that he probably scored off the charts because he's, he's just the most intelligent man I've ever come across the most intelligent human being, his recollection, his ability to just remember things, to see something and automatically 
sear it into his brain. Um, so I think there had to be some kind of quality that they saw in him. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he had already been in counterintelligence, it was like kind of a slam dunk that he'd be great in the secret service. Yeah, that, that exists somewhere. I mean, there's been a couple fires here and there in different, uh, you know, that'll burn things yeah, down. Military stuff got burned up in St. Louis. It, that's it. See, once again, there's the memory right there. St. Louis. Yeah. I was going to be like, there was a, I forget what year that was. You probably remember, but uh, a ton of <laughs> records were lost. <laughs> there, I got you. Wow. Uh, but yeah, a lot of them, a lot, a lot of military records went up, uh, went up in smoke then. Um, but uh that the first interview that you guys did together, um, uh, Lisa, do you remember how emotional it was for him or was he fairly stoic? And then how is it different than doing that two hour interview and then the back and forth on email and phone calls, uh, to then capturing it in five days in November? Cause this is a really emotional book to read, like every page. Um, every page, so how yeah, is it different? Great. Yeah. How are those two hours? And then what happened before you, that first book? About well, what that? I noticed that that first meeting was he was very stoic, but then mm-hmm. there were, um, two incidents where I saw him get emotional and it really surprised me. Um, one was when I brought up, um, the death of, of Patrick Bouvier Kennedy. Um, this was the, the child that um, President and Mrs. Kennedy had on August 7th of 1963. Um, and Clint had gone through the pregnancy with Mrs. Kennedy. They were, you know, looking forward to this baby. And, you know, it was very public because mm. here was the president and the first lady about to have a baby in the White House. And the baby died in less than two days. And when I asked him about that, it was like a memory he hadn't thought of in so long. And he started tearing up and he kind of didn't want to talk about it. And so I, I didn't push him on it, but I realized, wow, there are some things really buried in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that always got to him and still does is uh, when he imagines that famous salute oh. by John Jr. Yeah. And you describe that in here, like I, I was thinking about reading that part, and but I don't know if I can get through reading that those paragraphs in here. It's all like ev- everything in here is so so emotional, which is why it's so so powerful. Uh, but you served under hence the the name of the book, five presidents, or one of the books right here, five different presidents, five administrations. Um, but I hadn't thought of this before until I read it in here that only Eisenhower had a uh, quote unquote normal run as as president, and uh, you. You write that here. You say, it is interesting to note that of these five presidents, only Eisenhower had a normal run, elected by the people and serving full two terms. Kennedy was elected in 1960 by the slimmest of margins, and his term lasted just 1,000 days, cut short by an assassin. Suddenly, the vice president became president. Johnson was reelected the following year, but when the demands of the office and the casualties of the Vietnam War became more than he could bear, he chose not to run for a second term. Nixon was elected in 1968 and again in 1972, but in the wake of the Watergate scandal, he became the first United States president to resign in 1974. A year earlier, when Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in disgrace, Nixon appointed Gerald Ford as vice president. Thus, upon Nixon's uh, resignation, Ford became president, never having been elected to the office. And I hadn't thought about that before. Those years, uh, from the late 50s all the way up to the, into the mid-70s, um, only Eisenhower had a quote-unquote normal run as president. 
Um, That's correct. Wow. And when you think about those times, what, what, when you think about all those different administrations, what stands out to you as a, uh, uh, a core element when you think of, uh, of Eisenhower, when you think of, uh, I probably know what it is for Kennedy, but you think of Nixon or you think of Ford, what, uh, what stands out to you about those administrations in your memory as far as differentiating them from one another? Well, you know, with Kennedy, you, you know, it's the assassination, mm-hmm. but it, well, while he was still alive, it was, uh, the Bay of Pigs, uh, you know, and also uh, the uh, Cuban situation and his necessity to have a naval roadblock or sea block to, to prevent ships from getting into Cuba. Uh, there were a lot of things during that administration. But during Eisenhower, it was when Gary Powers got shot down over the Soviet Union and, and we were supposed to be going to Paris for a summit which we did do, but the first day, because of the Gary Powers thing and the fact that Eisenhower actually had lied to the public by saying that this was actually a weather aircraft, mm. you know, Sounds it, familiar. it was a yeah. U-2 spy plane. I mean, and this what the United States didn't know was that they had parts of it intact and they had the pilot alive. So when they finally released that information, it was obvious that Eisenhower had lied. And then we get to Paris for the summit. First guy that he demands to take the floor is Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. And he just lets go against Eisenhower and walks out. And that was the end of the summit. Wow. I mean, we, you know, it was, and Eisenhower, first time I'd ever heard him swear off the golf course. <laughs> so you could tell he was bad. Then with Johnson, it's, I mean, there are a lot of things that happened during the Johnson administration. Martin Luther King gets assassinated. Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated. The Vietnam War gets completely out of whack. Uh, and he just, and then the Democratic National Convention meets in Chicago, and it's a riot. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And then Nixon comes along and he wins big, both in 68 and, you know, and again in 72. But then all things break loose and they break into the Watergate and they get caught. And so, I mean, there was just one thing after another, each one of those administrations. With Jerry Ford, it was the fact that he actually pardoned Nixon. The people really resented that. Mm. And so when they went to the polls in 1976, they chose Jimmy Carter over Jerry Ford. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I mean, was there ever a normal day? Is there any, is there such thing as a normal day? I mean, do you ever get used to the surprises? Not really. (laughs) really. No, yeah. And you're always, your adrenaline's always flowing full, full blast. You're, you better be on your toes because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Like I say, you never know around what's what's around that next corner. Yeah. You can't see there, so you don't know. Yeah. Be alert and be ready. There we go. Good advice but for I anything. I think some of the lightest times were probably when you were with Mrs. Kennedy. So during uh, JFK's administration, he was actually assigned to Mrs. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So from 1960 to 1964. So he was with her a lot of times away from the White House when she traveled. And, you know, that's our latest book, yeah. My Travels with Mrs. Kennedy, which 
we wanted to focus on um, everything except the assassination. Right. We covered that. That's all anybody ever wants to talk about with Clint. And, um, you know, these were, it was the time of Camelot and he got to witness things um, that, you know, nobody ever could imagine of what, what was it like to travel with Jacqueline Kennedy when she was the most famous woman in the world and he's in charge of keeping her safe and making sure she's happy and healthy. And um, so, you know, those, there were some, some light times too, right? Oh yeah. I mean, during that period, there were a lot of light times, wonderful times. Uh, you know, I don't, most people don't know to this day that Mrs. Kennedy very rarely ever traveled on government aircraft. Mm. The president didn't want her spending the people's money for her travels. And so we were either on the family plane to Caroline when we were in the States, which was an old slow convoy, or we were traveling commercial and we were international. We would usually go uh, United Airlines on some, once in a while. Trans- Not United. Not United. What Pan Am. Pan Am. Pan American Airways. You're right. And then uh, once in a while, the trans world would get in there, but uh, it was always at his expense, not the government's. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Uh, the photos, like you found a, a trunk of photos for this book. God, there's a lot of photos in here that I hadn't seen before. Uh, I, I Lisa's the one that rounded them all up. Okay. She knew they were out there. <laughs> And she had to go a lot of different places to find them because, you know, many photographers have sold their rights to their mm. catalog of photos to big corporations like Getty. Okay. And, uh, so she had to find them and she did a wonderful job. But, finding them. but in the, the trunk that we found was in his garage okay. of, um, in his home in Alexandria, Virginia. And, um, we were going to clean out the house in 2019, right before COVID hit, because he was going to sell the house. And he basically said, let's just call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Oh, my I don't goodness. Think there's anything in there. He told me he had gotten everything out of it that was of value. So fortunately, I said, well, let's just go take a look just to make sure. <laughs> and um, we found this trunk. I kind of uncovered it in the garage underneath all this stuff. And it said, Clinton Hill, the White House, Washington, D.C. Might want to hold on to that one. Yeah. (laughs) And he hadn't opened it in 50 years. You know, it's like a time capsule. So we started pulling things out. And that's what this book is about, all the memories that that brought back. And, you know, why did he save certain things? And, you know, he had burned a lot of things um, because he didn't want people to find it. But it was it was uh fascinating to me it was like you know finding pieces of history which yeah. to him he would say well is that why are you excited about that you know? <laughs> but well you know it, for me it was uh what do i do with this i mean do i keep it i mean yes. the whole house would be nothing but you know memorabilia but <laughs> uh so i had it played it someplace so i just had this trunk so i just threw the stuff in there Oh my goodness, it's fantastic. And you went with her, you went to France, to Greece, to India, Pakistan, 
back then. Um, uh, Italy and of course, Hannesport. Uh, a good friend of mine got married at Hannesport. He married into the, the family. So I was up there. And so some of the pictures in here in front of that flagpole in the, the round circular area down there by the really beach. So we have pictures uh-huh. right there. And so I was looking at this and having gone into the house and I got to escort Ethel, Ethel Kennedy down to at the, at the christening. And uh, it was, it was, wow. it was incredible. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was such an honor. Um, but so, so seeing all those pictures in here was, was amazing. And it hadn't changed that much. It looks, still looks pretty much exactly the same as it did a few years ago when my friend got married out there. Um, <laughs> but you met Mrs. Kennedy in uh, the book here. It says November 11th, 1960 is when you met her. Um, why, what, do you know why you were assigned to, to her? Like what uh, ranking or hey, you just happened to be there walking by one day or what is it? Well, How did no, you get assigned well, to her? With Eisenhower, we were down in Augusta, Georgia. The day after the election in 1960, we went to Augusta so he could play golf on the golf course, the Masters or so, mm-hmm. played on. And uh, But after that first round, uh, I, he called me and two other agents in to his office, and he gave the other two agents instructions to pack their bags. They were going to Palm Beach, Florida, where President Kennedy was going. Mm-hmm. President Mrs. Kennedy were at the point, at, po- at that point up in Hyannisport. And but they told me, he said, look, Secretary of Defense is down here. You grab a ride with him back to Washington, and tomorrow you go in and see the chief. That was uh, what they called the head of the Secret Service at that time. So I was not going to be permitted to go with the the new president-elect. I was going to have some other assignment. I wasn't too pleased about that either, but there's nothing you could do about it. So I went back to Washington and went in to see the chief and he had with him his assistant and two or three inspectors and they started to interrogate me Mm. and they were asking me questions. I knew they had the answers to based on my background investigation, Mm -hmm. but when I went through the process and it was maybe an hour and uh, maybe even more, they conferred over in the corner Finally turned, they said, uh, Mr. Hill, we finally make a decision. You are being assigned to Mrs. Kennedy. We want you to go out to, to uh, their home in uh, Georgetown section of Washington and meet Mrs. Kennedy as soon as possible. And I said, she was up in Pinesport uh, with her husband. And so that following Friday, uh, they flew from Pinesport to Washington and she and Caroline uh, got off the plane and came over to Georgetown to their new home. Mm. And he flew on to Florida. He was in the process of choosing his uh, cabinet. And so then I went out there that next morning to meet her. Mm. Um, and how were you feeling about being assigned to the first lady? Like I'd been kicked in the stomach. I just, I really, I was really angry. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing I could do. This was my job. I mean, I, if I wanted to stay in the Secret Service, this is what they were going to have me do. So why were you angry? Explain, like, why? Well, I wanted to be where the action was, and that was with the president. Mm-hmm. In the previous administrations with Mrs. Eisenhower and Mrs. Truman, I mean, what did they do during the day? Oh, they uh, went shopping at uh, the French place called J.C. Penney. <laughs> or they... Uh, Played canasta, 
or something of that similar. I mean, the agents didn't do anything. Mm. I mean, it was a dead end. Mm. So I really thought, well, my career had barely got started. And that looks like it's almost over. And uh, so I went out, I met her. She indicated she was not too pleased about somebody being looking over her shoulder 24 hours a day. Right. I was not too pleased about being there. <laughs> but we agreed we had to get along. And I <laughs> didn't have any choice. I didn't have any choice. <laughs> we managed to get along in some water. Yeah. I mean, you got along uh, qu quite well uh, from these stories. Uh, there was quite a connection there. Um, and uh, you write, that uh, you became her whole staff, social secretary, press secretary. You guys had quite uh, quite a connection. All right, today I want to talk about Protect.com. That is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Started by my buddy Nick Norris from the SEAL teams, who was recently on the podcast. He's all about health and wellness and living that best life. So what we have here, hydration, immunity, energy, rest liquid packs because we all want to feel our best. We dream of waking up with plenty of energy to excel at our work, our personal lives and have a great workout every single day. But the reality is very few of us do that. That's why Protect was started and you can grab a convenient pack right here. This is energy. So this has been boosting me through my latest novel and look at that. It's a liquid pack right there. You just bam, add it to a glass, add a little water and you are good to go. So hydration, Love the hydration and the immunity and the clarity, which I'm going to take as soon as this podcast is over and I get back to writing. So all of that plus the rest. How important is that rest right here? Take that an hour and a half before bed for some great sleep. And for hydration right here, 30 minutes after you wake up and right before your workout. So swap that daily energy drink for the energy, try that hydration, that immunity, that rest. And they also have products like this, Reef Safe Sunscreen, SPF 50 Protect, right there. And right now, you can get 25% off. Go to Protect.com, that is P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com, slash Danger Close for 25% off. Go check them out. When did you realize after that initial meeting that it might be a little different than, uh, than you thought that this was going to be either, Hey, this is going to be special or this is going to be a lot different than I thought it was going to be. When she started to travel alone, like even out to Middleburg, Virginia, where they had a leased property, uh, she was not like a previous first ladies. She also was very athletic and very intelligent. And she was a real good uh, equestrian. She loved riding horses. And that's the reason they got this property, at least a property out in Virginia, so she could ride. And she'd go out there at least once a week. And as time went on, it got extended to go out on Friday and stay till Sunday. And then pretty soon it's Friday to Monday. And pretty soon it's Thursday to Tuesday. And, uh, I mean, and I was at the same time being required to make excuses for, for her because they would schedule her to attend a luncheon and we'd be out there in Middleburg and she'd be riding horses 
And I'd have to let the social secretary know she wasn't going to be there. You better get a hold of the president's mother or one of her sisters to stand in for her. And that's what they do. Oh, my goodness. Did you have to learn? Or did you already know how to ride or did you have to ride with her on these uh, excursions? wouldn't let us ride. Oh, really? I grew up in North Dakota. So, so I mean, knew. if you're in North Dakota and you live in a small town or out in the country, like I lived in a real small town, you know how to ride. Interesting. But, uh, but not like she rode. Well, no. She she was an expert. Uh, I mean, and fox hunting, she, right? Yeah, jumping fences and bushes. Yeah. about that. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. So, I mean, she was really good. Amazing. Amazing. You know, it also strikes me that those five administrations are uh, – essentially our initial involvement in Vietnam through our withdrawal. You were there for every part of that. Pretty much from 60. Well, I was there when it started with yeah. the, um, during Kennedy, actually, when they put the uh, people out there to train the Vietnamese. Yeah. Uh, that didn't work too well, so they had to put in people. And the more people they put in, it seemed like the worst had gotten, and Johnson added to that. And, it just kept building and building and building and they're just getting horrible. Yeah. Another really emotional um, moment that I recall Clint talking about was when he was the special agent in charge of presidential protection with Johnson. Mm -hmm. And um, in 1968, 67 and 68, and there was a time uh, Clint, when they were sending a lot of troops over to Vietnam and you went with Johnson to to see them off. And why don't you tell them about that, what, what that was kind of like? Yeah, that was, it was when they were having a big a buildup of American troops over there. So Johnson wanted to say, you know, good luck and whatever to the troops. And so we flew down to Georgia, or no, Fort Benning, I guess it was. Yeah, Fort Benning. And uh, I stood on one side of the doorway where the troops got on the, uh, aircraft and he stood on the other side and these guys, I mean, they were 18 years old, most yeah. of them were 19, 20. And I, we knew that uh, once they landed in Vietnam, the chance of them coming back in one piece was like 30% or something. It wasn't very great and that uh, I really felt sorry for these guys. And then we flew from there on the presidential plane out to California to do the same thing at, uh, I think it was Pendleton. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that really bothered me that just to see these young men go through this knowing that what was going to, what the end result was. Yeah. And during this time, do you, um, do you get any more training other than uh, uh, on the job or mentorship? Or do they ever update that manual they gave you in 1958? Like, what's, uh, well, how are things evolving? Finally, they finally, you know, when I was back in Washington, at the, I was on the White House detail. I went through what they called uh, Treasury agent training. Mm -hmm. At that time, the Treasury Department was the head agency for the Secret Service the Bureau of Narcotics, the ATF, uh, Customs, and the Coast Guard. And so agents from all of those, uh, we all went to school together. It was like six weeks. Then uh, a couple of years after that, I went through what they call 
secret service school, which is another like maybe four weeks or whatever it was. And uh, we just worked on things that involved the secret service. So yes, I got some formal training finally. Now that's completely changed. I mean, if you get accepted to be an agent in the secret service now, first thing you do is go to a place called Fletzy, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. And you're going to be there for, I don't know how long, maybe eight weeks. Yeah. If you successfully finish that course, then you will go to Bellsville, Maryland for another a long session of eight weeks or so of Secret Service training, mm-hmm. specialized. And then while you're on the job, uh, you'll be required to train to, uh, we had to fire at least once every two weeks. Okay. On the detail. And uh, so, I mean, it, it, it was constant. Yeah. What were you carrying back then? What did they issue you as far as a sidearm? 38, it started out with a 38 Smith & Wesson. That's revolver. my guess. That was going <laughs> to be my guess. Um, and have you been there to, to, uh, to lecture, to, to talk to those guys? Um, to, to Glencoe. I, was, I was, went to Glencoe, Georgia, the training center with uh, another agent, Jerry Parr, who is famous for saving Ronald Reagan's life. Oh, okay. Uh, he was the agent in charge at that time. Wow. And he and I would go down there together usually and, and talk to this class of students. Yeah. So, uh, and that was always very interesting. Yeah, I bet. What and, to- then, and at the Secret Service um, Training Center in Beltsville, Maryland, uh, I think it was in 2014 or 2015 around then, um, they named a street after him. All right. Um, right there in the training facility called Clint Hill Way and had a big dedication. So now all of the agents that are going through those training, they have to go by Clint Hill way. That is pretty cool. That, uh, I mean, for people that are listening uh, or watching, I mean, you are, I talked to a, a secret service um, agent buddy of mine this morning and he, he was like, Oh my gosh, Clint Hill is coming on your podcast. He's like, I'm so jealous. He's and he's like, are you nervous? I'm like, yeah, I'm a little nervous. I haven't been really nervous for any podcast, but you know, you're a legend in and out of the secret service. So, um, and then even these books, when I went dove back into these, these books, cause I'd, uh, I'd read this before, but I went back and revisited it and then I got the others and went through those and oh my gosh, even, I mean, I knew about you and obviously what you, what you'd done and, and, uh, but then reading about it again and reading it, uh, the way you guys wrote about it in these is absolutely astounding. And, um, I mean, Lisa, what you brought to this to bring it, bring those stories to life together. I mean, what a team. And, and now it's here forever. Now everybody will get to read these and, uh, uh, and, and kind of put, can we hire you eyes. as our publicist? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're doing some Thank of that right God. now. Cause it's I want really so nice of you to say that. I think, you know, for me as, as the writer, the, you know, the most flattering things people say, or the highest compliment is when they say, you know, I felt like I was there or I couldn't put it down. So we feel like that's what we, we wanted you to be like, you were walking in Clint's shoes. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you said, in, in the beginning here, it's, it's history, but it's not like reading a history book when you put, uh, you know, the personal Mm -hmm. side of things 
and you're going through this, I think it it sticks with people more and they're more apt to remember and to feel. Yeah. That's the whole point too, is, is to really get that emotion. Yeah, I, I wish that there was some of the schools would uh, bring these books into their history class. Oh, they for sure should bring all of these books in. And uh, what I'm going to do is going to, I'm not going to give them to my kids. I'm going to buy them again for my kids because I hold on to all my books for my library. So I'm going to get them all again for my kids and give them to, for, for them to read. So they'll, they'll have their own collection. That's not, uh, that's not borrowed from me. Cause I'll be going back to, to these for sure. And for people that have been listening, um, you know, people we've, we've, we've talked about it and around it, but if people are kind of new to this, uh, from a different generation, um, they might not exactly know what you did, um, in November of 1963. So, uh, I want to read that, um, right here for people listening. So they know what we're, uh, what you did, um, back then. And, uh, this is from chapter 14 in five days in November, uh, titled the shots. And, uh, you say, with my hand loosely on the handhold, my feet firmly planted on the running board, I can I scan the grassy area on the left side of Elm Street, just a handful of people. Suddenly, I hear an explosive noise over my right shoulder from the rear. Instinctively, I turn toward the noise, and my eyes cross the back of the presidential vehicle. I see President Kennedy throw his hands up to his throat and move violently to his left. Oh, God, someone is shooting at the president. I jump from the follow-up car and run toward the presidential car. My actions are automatic, reactive. The only thought going through my head is that I must get on the back of the president's car and form a protective shield behind the president and Mrs. Kennedy. Nothing else matters. The motorcycle engines are loud in my ears, and the car continues to move forward away from me. I'm running as fast as I can, my eyes focused on the two people in the back seat of the car. I'm gaining ground almost there, my arms reaching for the handhold, when another shot rings out. The bullet hits its mark, piercing the back of President Kennedy's head just above the and behind the right ear. In that same instant, a vile eruption of blood, brain matter, and bone fragments spews out, showering over Mrs. Kennedy across the trunk and onto me. So I think every American has seen the Zapruder film, at least, but they might not, unless they dive a little bit deeper, know who that agent was who jumped from that trail vehicle and ran up. And if you see the film and you watch it closely, you almost didn't make it onto the back, and that would have meant that that trail vehicle would have run over you. Um, because yeah, they're starting to accelerate. Yeah, I slipped. I my when I first put my foot up on the rear bumper foothold, there was a place specifically built on each side of the rear bumper for the agents to stand on. And when I first put my foot on that, it was about the same time that the driver accelerated, and I lost my footing, and I had to take two or three more steps in order to get up there. And if I'd have fallen. The car behind me, there's no way he could have stopped because he was going as fast as the president's car and he was only three feet behind him. So, and at the same time, Mrs. Kennedy had started coming out of the back seat onto the trunk. She, she would have probably come off the rear of the car too. Mm-hmm. So, it would have been a tragedy where she would have been killed as long as, as with her husband. And you're running to shield them to take, to take that bullet. And well, that was my intent, yeah, because we had a the, the, what they called in the Secret Service uh, uh, cover and evacuate. So that's what I was trying to do is cover them so they can't be hit and get the driver an opportunity to get remove us from the area. Yeah. And what was interesting about this particular um, day 
was that uh, you had been running on, you've been standing on those boards before on the president's vehicle uh, in other yeah. events and uh, for other situations. But for this one, he wanted to ha- didn't want to have uh, any barriers between him and that and that Dallas crowd. Is that right? And that started the previous weekend when he was in Florida. They had a long, we weren't, Mrs. Kennedy was not on that trip. Mm-hmm. And so they had a big, long motorcade in Tampa, Florida. And it was hot and humid. And so the advance agent told the agents that were covering the car, covering the president and the motorcade, just to get up on the back of the car and just so that they wouldn't wear themselves out running in this heat and humidity. Well, the president happened to turn around one time and he saw them there. And so he re- leaned forward and he talked to the agent in the right front seat and said, get those charlatans off the back of the car. Uh, and so they, they got off. And then afterwards, he spoke to the agent in charge and said, look, I'm running for re-election in 64. If people think there's something between them, me and them, they'll never vote for me. So it's got to be, oh, you guys have to back off a little bit. Don't get up so close. Don't hover over me. Yeah. And for people that continue watching the Zapruder film, you climb onto the back and then you cover the president, and Mrs. Kennedy, with your own body as the car. Yeah, I, I managed to lay up on top of the back seat, buried at top, high top of the back seat and with my one arm and holding on to the left side and my feet wedged into the right side. But so as we were traveling, because the driver got the car as fast as he could get it to go. Uh, and uh, So they were going about 70 miles per hour while he's up there, very precarious, because, you know, there were only three shots that were fired, but he didn't know if more shots were coming. He assumed more shots were coming. And... Um, you know, where, what was, nobody knew what was going on. And um, so that's why he was up there. And it was, it really is incredible to see the photographs of it. It is. And in this book, yeah, it's broken down in here, all the photos. I mean, all, all the photos throughout all of these books are are incredible. And I love this one, by the way, I love the the cover of you on the front of this one. This is, that's just a really great, uh, great shot um, right there. Um but you get to the hospital and then other people might not know also that you're the one who informed Bobby Kennedy that, uh, that his brother was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we got to the, uh, to Parkland hospital and, uh, we finally got the president's body into the emergency room. We had a little difficulty doing that because, uh, we first had to get governor Connolly who had also been shot and was mm-hmm. seated in a jump seat immediately in front of president Kennedy, the back of that jump seat was right up against, Kennedy's knees. And so we had to get the governor out before we could move the president. And once we did that, we started to to move the president, but Mrs. Kennedy had a hold of his body and wouldn't let go. And so I pleaded with her, nothing happened. I pleaded with her again. And I realized that I'd been with her for three years now. I knew her pretty well. And I realized she didn't want anybody to see the condition he was in. So I tore off my suit coat and covered up the his head and upper back and we got him on the gurney and took him into trauma room uh, one in the emergency room. And my supervisor said, Clint, he said, call Washington, get the White House, tell him what's going on. So I 
had the nurse find me a phone right at the nurse's station. I dialed the local, we had a switchboard set up in Dallas because we always did that for whenever a president went any place, they said it was special switchboarding. Mm-hmm. I got that and I got the operator and I told him, I said, look, keep this line open. Don't let anybody cut in. So I was talking to my boss in, in the White House and the operator cut in. And he said, Mr. Hill, I said, I'm sorry, but the attorney general wants to talk to you. Well, that was Bobby Kennedy, the president's brother. And so I said, okay. I said, yes, Mr. Attorney General, what can I do for you? He said, Clint, he said, what's going on down there? And I said, well, your brother's been shot and the governor has been shot. And we're in Parkland Hospital. And the doctors are doing everything they can. And he said, well, how bad is it? It sounded like he didn't really think it was that bad. And I didn't really want to tell him that his brother was dead because I knew when the time that we got him in the trauma room, I knew he was already dead. And uh, so I said, uh, it's as bad as it could get. And with that, he just hung up the phone. And then I went on to do other business. I, they asked me to get a casket. I ordered a casket from a local uh, uh, mortuary. And, uh, you know, everything was moving along. We were going to leave uh, the hospital and go back to Air Force One. And then the coroner walked in and said, what are you guys doing? And uh, my boss is doing the Wilbur. Preparing to leave, we're going back to Air Force One, fly back to D.C. For He said, oh, no, you can't do that. Since there's a state law in Texas that says any homicide a victim must receive an autopsy before they can be released from the hospital. And so he said, well, how long will that take? And the, the coroner said, well, it could take a few hours, maybe a day. He said, no, that's not acceptable. We're going to go anyway. So the coroner said, well, if you're going to go anyway, then get a, a, a medical professional to be with the body during the entire course of events. Mm-hmm. I volunteered the president's medical military doctor, uh, doctor uh, who had been around for quite a while. And uh, so... With that, the coroner seemed to be accepting of our leaving. And uh, so we prepared to leave. The nurses wrapped the body up and put it in the casket and took it out to the hearse. And I said to Mrs. Kenny, I said, Mrs. Kenny, I said, we can travel in this car right back here. She said, oh, no. She said, I'm going to get in the back with the president. Well, Dr. Berkeley, who was the doctor that I had told the coroner would be the one to accompany the body, was already there. And he was crawling into the back of the hearse as we spoke. And she saw that and she was going to do the same thing. So I said, okay, that's what you want to do. So she crawled in and I crawled in right behind her. And so we were in the back of the hearse, the three of us in a casket. Uh, You think of it a little tight? Yeah, it was a little tight. Yeah. Um, we get to Air Force One out at Love Field. Uh, it was the plane that we had arrived on. 
and uh, we unloaded the casket off the first. And we had to carry it up the stairway to the back of the aircraft where the the flight engineer had removed had a bunch of the seats removed from the back of the airplane so that we would have a place to put the casket. So we get way up the top of the steps. We're just about trying to go through the door. We realize uh, we can't go through the doorway because the damn casket with the handles on is too wide. So we ripped and tore until we got the handles in a situation where we could get it through there. And we did, we got it through. Yeah. It was all the agents that were carrying the casket yeah, up the steps. Just agents. And we put the casket in the back of the aircraft, and then Mrs. Kennedy came up the steps, and she sat in the back with it. She sat there for the majority of the flight. The only time she didn't was when she first went to the bathroom, and and then when she was asked to stand beside uh, then Vice President Johnson as he took the oath of office to become president. And there's and at one point she before that happened, she had asked to see me now. Once we had secured the aircraft, we were ready to take off. Why? Um, I had gone to the forward portion of the aircraft so I could sit near the radio operator. And I get a message that she wants to see me in the back of the aircraft. So I walk back through the plane and through the, the area in which President and Mrs. Johnson and members of Congress are seated and approach Mrs. Kennedy as I did. She stood up and she grabbed my hand. She said, oh, Mr. Hill, she said, what's going to happen to you now? I said, I'll be okay, Mrs. Kennedy. I said, I'll be okay. She was worried that, you know, uh, she had no idea what was going on. And, and she was worried about me. She was worried about all the agents because she knew it was going to really take its toll on every one of us. It's like it was on her. I mean, it's amazing. It says so much about her, and I have that part. Um marked here i was going to read it um everybody should get this book and read that because that says so much about her she's worried about you and you that, can still read it if you want at that time at <laughs> that time yeah i will uh mrs kennedy is still in the rear compartment and before the swearing in ceremony begins i receive word that she wants to see me she stands as i approach her as i look at her face streaked with tears her eyes so hollow and lifeless a wave of guilt and shame washes over me she's just 34 years old now and a widow two young children. How did I let this happen to her? Yes, Mrs. Kennedy, what did you need? She reaches out her hand, takes mine and says, what's going to happen to you now, Mr. Hill? I clench my jaw and swallow hard. I'll be okay, Mrs. Kennedy. I'll be okay. I mean, incredible. Are well, those- it amazed me I, that she would take the time then to do that and she did it really really did and those days did they become a whirlwind for a while and did they become crisper later on or did, was every single moment as clear as it seems by talking with you and then by by reading it in the in the books here i did get the question it, well it was i think he he's asking you know was it so crystal clear in your mind everything that was going on but i think you were just you were just going through the motions, but yeah. it was, it was so emotional, Jack. And one thing that um, I've learned in doing all of these books is that when, when anyone has a deeply emotional situation, mm -hmm. whether it's joyful 
or tragic, those situations are stamped into your soul. And I know that you have had situations like that where it is so vivid. Every time you think about it, the story doesn't change and you can see it almost like a movie. And so with Clint, especially those five days Mm -hmm. in November, every single moment was this intense. It was, it was so intense. It was just stamped into his soul. And um, every time he tells the story, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. And, and you were there throughout the rest of the time. I'll read this part right here. See if I can, I can get through it. Um, and uh, this is the funeral and it's uh, at the bottom of the steps. Mrs. Kennedy stands stoically as the casket containing her husband's body is placed once again uh, into the gun carriage directly in front of us. As the casket is secured, the military renders a salute to their fallen commander. Standing just to Mrs. Kennedy's right, next to Ted, I see Mrs. Kennedy lean down and whisper into John's ear. Then, in a moment that is branded on my heart, young John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., on his third birthday, thrusts his shoulders back, brings his right hand taut up to his brow, and renders the perfect salute to his father. My chest heaves as I fight the surge of emotions inside. Looking around, I see I'm not alone. Everyone watching from the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the lowest private is struggling to remain composed. Three years ago, I was there when John was born, and today we are burying his father. The salute is captured on film and becomes yet another iconic photograph of this tragedy. For the rest of my life, seeing that image is the one that will always, always choke me up. Incredible. Yeah, still does. Yeah, I bet. Anybody reading this, it's going to choke them up too. And, uh, and a lot of these photographs, probably a lot of people haven't seen before there, you're holding the hands of the kids right there. It's just, it's, uh, it's absolutely incredible. And this is what, uh, what Jacqueline Kennedy writes to you on white house stationery. She says for Clint Hill, who did more than anyone to make my life with the president happy and who guarded and protected him until the very end. How can I thank you? I mean, jeez. It makes me cry. I know it's emotional. My gosh, the whole the whole thing is just uh, is incredible. And then you know, Jack, to think of their ages at that time. So I I was thinking that too. Son who is who is thirty one years old, and um, Clint was thirty one at that time. Jacqueline Kennedy was thirty four years old when her husband is assassinated. She's a widow. I mean, it's it and she's the first lady and she's on the world stage. And um, she, she really led the country through that grief, I think. And, and it was just amazing. Yeah, she, she, did, she did a tremendous job. Um, really kind of holding the country together. Yeah. Uh, and that was the only time at, at that point anyway, where everything stopped. Yeah. Uh, everything was canceled for most things. Uh, the only thing on TV was like one channel. Uh, every, everything was going through that one channel. It was amazing. I, mean, I can only imagine the different emotions because then you're in the White House walking down the hall when um, Lee Harvey Oswald is shot and killed. I yeah. mean. We were just getting ready to take the president's body up to the Capitol. We didn't have the idea of what was going on. Gosh, I mean, and then a few months later, it's uh, 
it's the Warren Commission. Um, and in March of 1964, you sat down with that. What, how many people were on that? Was it when you hear a commission, you think of a, a, a group of people, but is it a couple of people, a part of that commission that are interviewing you for that? Or what is, yeah, what was it like no, to sit down with them? That day. Okay. Uh, you know, it was, uh, Earl Warren was in charge. There were senators and congressmen. Congressman Jerry Ford was a member. Mm-hmm. He asked me a lot of questions. Uh, Senator Russell from Georgia, he was there. I mean, there were, I can't remember exactly how many members, like seven, maybe, Yeah, members of the commission, uh, both, representing both parties. Uh, some of them didn't really want to be on the commission. Mm. Johnson more or less forced them on by, uh, I know with Russell he did. Oh, he wow. didn't want to be on there. And and President Johnson turned to me and said, geez, he said, I don't know what we're going to do now. We've already told the press. They already know you're going to be on the commission. Mm. You're going to have to tell them that, no, you don't want that job. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't want to do that. So Interesting. he served on the commission. Was that true? Did, he, did they already yeah, tell the press? Or was he, <laughs> thought it might be like, oh, I just told them a few minutes ago. Uh, oh, interesting. And I know you Yeah, been, Johnson yeah. was a character, too. Oh, really? In, I mean, in Five Presidents, to me, that's... I love the stories about Johnson because Clint was so close to Johnson. And I think people, what we've heard from readers is they see this side of LBJ that, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't really realize. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what stands out to you about uh, being on that detail and being part of that administration uh, from a personal standpoint? Well, you know, I, I grew up in North Dakota. And now I'm on the White House detail, and most of the guys on the detail are from uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, you, you know. Okay. Not many of them from a place like Washburn, North Dakota. Okay. <laughs> so when they have to go on a repeated basis out to the LBJ Ranch, mm. it's not their idea of a lot of fun. Okay. And so uh, uh, I, I kind of enjoyed it out there. It was kind of like going, going home. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, And I know you've been back to, how long did it take you to go back to Daily Plaza? Because I've known, I know that you went back there for uh, a 60 Minutes Australia interview and you went up to the the Sniper's Perch and and talked them through it. Um, How many times have you been back and when was the first time you went back to to Daily Plaza after the assassination? Well, the first time, I guess, was like 2010. No, no, no. uh, Well, I went back in conference in 90. Well, in 1990, I was in San Antonio, and I went to Dallas and stopped there and went through. That was when the first year, I guess it was, they had uh, designated the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository as a museum. So 25 years later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and then I went back there again in uh, when it was 2010. 2010 to with a, a small group of agents mm. who were all involved with either with the Kennedy detail. Mm. Um, and then from that point on, they were, we've been, I was back there a number of times. Okay. Uh, and uh, they've really done a remarkable job in putting together this museum, the sixth floor museum in Dallas. But that first time you went back in 1990, that was pretty cathartic for you, right? Because you really oh, yeah. walked the area. I was. I went there all alone. I walked the area outside the 
the uh, I must have spent two hours total. Mm -hmm. I walked the area outside that up and down Dealey Plaza, the you know everything, and inside up to the sixth floor where the sniper's desk was. I took in as much as I could and uh, tried to figure out in my mind how this happened, how how we didn't interrupt it, how we didn't uh, figure it out and prevent it from happening. Uh, that's always bothered me. Yeah. Always will, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but writing these books and uh, and talking with Lisa about it um, has been obviously cathartic, but... Um, uh, it, have been, it has been cathartic to do that. Yeah. I had to speak about it. Yeah. That's made a big difference. And, and one thing I found really interesting is, you know, when I first met Clint, he... He really was anonymous. He mm. he nobody knew where he lived, what he who he was, what he was doing. And um he he kind of walked with his head down all the time. And he's he never did, still doesn't think of himself as a hero, never will. But when we would go out and and start talking about the books and people would come up and want to shake his hand and tell him what a hero he was. Mm-hmm it slowly I think started making him feel like it was, it was okay. He'll never think of himself as a hero, but um, just to hear other people say that and show their appreciation for what he did, I think has been helpful too. Well, it has been. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you realize, you know, I tried. That's all I can say. Yeah. I mean, what else can you do? I mean, there's nothing else. I appreciate the fact I did yeah, I mean, there's nothing else you could have done. I mean, you're a legend to all the Secret Service agents today, and to uh, people who aren't even in in uh, in that kind of a position that just are hoping that if they're ever tested, that they'll step up. And you you did your example for for all of America for for doing that. I mean, I mean, imagine had you not done that, and you talked a little bit about what could have happened as the car accelerated. I mean, just yeah, you uh, you stepped up, and you're an inspiration to to everyone who, uh, who, uh, who knows you and everyone who reads these books and listens to your interviews. And it's, uh, you're making the country a better place by, by talking about this and capturing these memories. So, so thank you for that. Um, and in all these, all these years since then, obviously the, this, the theories, the conspiracy theories, this and that, was there ever a moment where you might have, where you thought for a second that maybe there's more to this or have you always been, uh, thought, uh, that the conspiracy theory side of this was just, that just conspiracy was there ever a time because there's it's been a long time and a lot of things have come some of them crazy some of them not so crazy um and everything in between um did you ever question any of it or were you have you have, have you thought never about really that? questioned what, at least what i know to be true mm-hmm. uh, and that's what i find is every time i hear a theory what you call a theory and that's what they are theories of conspiracy theories uh that's the first thing that enters my mind as well this is strictly a theory. There's no fact behind it. Mm. And, uh, and many of them are just so ridiculous that you just automatically just throw out the window. Mm-hmm. There are very, very few that I really take serious enough to really kind of process it and see where it goes and then realize, well, no, that's not what happened either. Yeah. So... We were, we, one of our first presentations we did, I remember we were in uh, Barnes and Noble in New York City. And uh, this woman got up in the audience 
and proceeded to tell Clint exactly what happened oh, in boy. Dealey Plaza. <laughs> and I'll never forget. Yeah. <laughs> you remember what you did, what you said? No, I probably say, well, were you there? <laughs> <laughs> he put her in her place. I mean, very, he's always yeah. a gentleman, but I could see him getting riled up as she was saying, you know, there had to be 17 shooters and, you know, all of this. And I know this was happening. And he stood mm-hmm. up and he said, ma'am, <laughs> were you there? Wow. I was there and this is what I heard and this is what I saw and this is what I felt. And the audience just stood up and cheered. Yeah. You know, interesting. interesting. So, I mean, that's the thing is there nothing replaces someone who was there. Yeah. And, and what, for both of you, um, what do you think about um, these last, was it five years now? F- about five years now that uh, there were supposed to be some files released and their first, first uh, the last administration didn't release all of them. And then this, this one current administration postponed by a year and then didn't release everything, but left a little. It's just, it's always seemed to me like if the, why wouldn't they just release these things and put it all to rest? Because it gives so much fuel to the fire. Um, what, what, do you, what, are you, what are your thoughts on on that? For both well, of you? I mean, it does make everybody question, you know. There is nothing there. Uh, I don't know exactly why they're not agreeing to release everything, although I have an idea that it's because they don't want to give away any methods or methodology or let anybody know who uh, did certain things that not involving this, the assassination, but involving intelligence operations that mm. uh, they don't want to jeopardize. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Because uh, there's just nothing else. There's nothing there. I mean, yeah. I talked to somebody who really is on the know. In fact, he's, he's seen more... Uh, information than anybody else probably mm-hmm. and uh i talked to him i asked him i said is there anything here and he said no there's just nothing there yeah lisa what do you think because it seems like to me i'm looking at it and i go if they're trying to make themselves look guilty of something they're doing a pretty good job of making people well, think that they're true. guilty I mean, like what? they're yeah. extending then, they're extending the problem yeah. yeah but it was explained to me just like clint said that it, it there are um, still certain intelligence operations that were going on at that time that came out in some of the testimonies um, or in the in the research when they were doing the Warren Commission. Um, and some of those methodologies are being used today. And so, you know, there are, the, the public doesn't need to know everything. Uh, you know, the more I learn about this is... There are things to keep us safe. There are some things we probably shouldn't know what's what's going on. Um, so it, yeah, it's interesting because it's uh, it, it, they could also bring up the question. Um, wait a sec, the CIA is still using things today that they did in 1963. Shouldn't they have evolved a little bit? It's kind of like their <laughs> manual they gave you in '58, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, I, you, know, you, you, yeah. you have a point. You, yeah, you have a point. No question. But it's. Um, I mean, I agree with you. It would be nice if if everything could just be out there and um, put this all to rest, mm-hmm. because um, I re- I really think it's it's just it's very simple. And if you look at um, assassins throughout history, they 
have a very similar profile. And Lee Harvey Oswald fit that profile. Very much so. Interesting. Interesting. And I want to ask you about, because this is your latest one, and uh, it's get it in hardback, everybody out there, because this is one definitely you want in hardback because the pictures are so fantastic in here. Um, when you're thinking of those travels that you took, all those different places, Pakistan, back then, India, um, were, were there any uh, uh, close calls, really humorous incidents? What stands out to you when you think of those uh, travels that uh, that you took with Mrs. Kennedy during those years? What uh, what memories um, do you think of initially? Well, there are wonderful memories all those different places we went. We went all over the place. We were in uh, Pakistan, India, stopped in Tehran, and we were in Greece, Italy, France, Morocco. Uh, and there, and we spent a week, more than a week, I guess, 10 days down at, in the, uh, in, in Italy. And uh, that was a wonderful time, Ravello and it's a marvelous place to go and visit uh, if you can afford it. <laughs> and uh, well, luckily, uh, I could afford it because I was working. But, um, the, you know, the, we're about actually, I don't, I don't, we're going to be um, kind of revisiting India and Pakistan on our social media over the next few weeks because okay. it was uh, 61 years ago uh, next week. Wow. that Mrs. Kennedy arrived in India and it was um, a historic trip trip because no other American first lady had ever visited India or Pakistan wow. at that time. And Clint um, had gone ahead for the advance. And, you know, one of the things when we were finding all these photos, some of them in the trunk, some of them we found later, um, what I was stunned by were that massive amounts of people that were swarming around Mrs. Kennedy wow. in India. And there's Clint. You can always find Clint yeah. right next to her. Um, but there would be hundreds, if yeah. not thousands of people around her. And you just had like two or three agents on her at a time. Well, that's the way it was in India, Pakistan as well. But, uh, wow. I mean, it was just one of those things. Uh, I guess the, the Indian people feel it. Up close and personal is a way to be. You know? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The photos are incredible in these. And uh, and what are the, what are those social media channels for everybody listening? We'll put them in the show notes and everything. But uh, just for people that are listening, what are those uh, social media so channels? Clint's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as at Clint Hill underscore SS as in Secret Service. Nice. So um, he he has a little help from his team, but. Yeah, he, you know all the hey, all the work I, get it. I understand. <laughs> I need all the help I can get. <laughs> I understand, it. and they keep changing things on us too in that social media space. When, they when don't you make get it easy. Ninety-one years old. <laughs> Those things in the brain don't quite snap as fast as you, oh, you want. <laughs> believe me, I'm trying to uh, work to a point where I have an analog phone in the house again, and that if anybody wants to reach me, they have to write a letter, and I'll have a post there office box go. set up. Like I'm, that's what I'm working towards to get back to yeah. that. Uh, and we see your typewriters there. Yep, the yep, got the old typewriters right here. Uh, I'm actually collecting all the uh, the VHS tapes from when I was growing up in the '80s. I'm recollecting those so I can just put them into a tape player and watch instead of. Having having to do these streaming services where I'm yelling at my wife, like, what's the password? It's asking us for the password again. And the thing's just spinning there on the screen and you're waiting and 
you're trying to sit down and relax for a second, but it's uh, they're making it very difficult, making you very anxious by trying to figure out what the password. It says it's not the right one. What email is it attached to? It's like, <laughs> it's, it, uh, so I feel you it too. Feel for it. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. Right. Uh, amazing, amazing. And I, thank you guys so much for spending this time. I mean, I know I, I'm looking at the clock over here. So thank you so much. It is such an honor to talk to both of you. Um, and a couple last things. Uh, when you think about Mrs. Kennedy today, or you think about President Kennedy today, what are the first thing that comes to your mind about both of those people? Well, what a wonderful couple they were, mm -hmm. and actually devoted to each other. Mrs. Gann devoted to the kids. They really were a family that was together, and then, you know, the the rest of the Kennedys too, just they all hung in there together. It was just one big family. Uh, she just wanted to be as normal as possible without, you know, all the trimmings that to go along with it yeah. that she's required to have. So she was always worried about those kids, making sure they grew up as just plain old children, happy. Yeah. healthy and safe um she didn't want them affected by the position that her husband held yeah so, and president kennedy when you think of him what first comes oh, to, to mind just the most personal guy you ever imagined he he knew each and every one of us by first name eisenhower did not mm. eisenhower never called us by name he'd say hey agent mm. that was eisenhower's way of getting to try getting to your attention Interesting. With Kennedy, it was, hey, Clint, or hey, Bill. Uh, so, I mean, it was just one of those down-to-earth guys, and he'd stop and talk to you. Yeah. If you had the opportunity, and take, if there was time, he'd just stop and talk to you. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. He had a great sense of humor. Too, wonderful right? sense of humor. Yeah. Amazing. So, good, good, good man to be around. Yeah. And Lisa, for you, after doing uh, all this research and writing and spending all this time with Clint, um, what stands out for you that people might not know about uh, that time period in particular, because so much is focused on it? What uh, what stands out for you when you think about all this research and writing you've done and all the conversations that you've, you've had? Um, what stands out for you? Well, I think just realizing that uh, presidents and first ladies, they're humans, you know, just like us and things happen, they have emotions and yet they have the weight of the world on their shoulders. And um, I really think most of them go, the presidents go into the job wanting to do their best. Um, and then politics gets in the way. <laughs> um, uh, you know, just I've, I've learned an incredible amount and I have so much respect for the military and for the Secret Service. Um, every Secret Service agent I've met, and I've met so many along the course of this, they are the most upstanding human beings and they're so dedicated to their jobs. And um, and we applaud them. And because of them, we haven't had another assassination. And um, just pray that they can keep getting the money and the resources they need from Congress to mm. keep doing their jobs. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, somebody told me, uh, uh, Mike Rowe said you had a business card that you had your favorite drink recipe on or something like that. What's, uh, what's that all about? Where did that come from? Oh, well, I, uh, 
I have a drink that I prefer over anything else. And I kind of developed it in the late 1900s, early 2000s. Uh, Campari, vodka, club soda, a slice of orange, and a little bit of ice in a tall glass. All right. And they call it a Clint. Right. He calls it the Clint. <laughs> well, I'm going to call it that now, too. But how did you get, how did you manage to get the card? Well, she has two sons and she and I would go out to dinner and the sons would go with us and the waiter would come and take the order and they'd ask for a drink order and I'd start to give my recipe for this drink <laughs> and the waiter or waitress would automatically say, just a moment while I go get a piece of paper and pencil to write this down because there's too much involved. <laughs> so one Christmas... As a gift, her oldest son, Connor, as a gift, he and his wife, Abby, gave me a box of business-sized cards on which is a picture of uh, the drink, the recipe of the drink, and it, it's something that when I go in someplace, they don't know what this is, I just give them the card. So one time I'm in a bar, and sitting next to me is a fella. I don't know him. And the waiter asked me what I want. And I said, and, uh, like a Clint. He said, well, I don't know what that is. And I said, here. And I handed him the card. And the guy sitting next to me looked at me strangely and turned to me. And he said, I've never, ever seen anybody order a drink on a, with a business card. <laughs> so what do you got on that thing, you know? So I reached in my pocket and I pulled out another one. I gave it to him. <laughs> Turned out, I didn't know this guy. Turned out it was Mike Rowe. <laughs> and he uh, wrote about this meeting we had at this bar. And uh, thousands of people paid attention to what he wrote. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it happened to be on President's Day weekend. Oh, wow. And so he wrote about it for President's Day and... But he's, and at the end of the Facebook post, he said, and so on this President's Day, I urge you to read more about Clint Hill and buy the book Five Presidents. So this was in 2019, I think it was. Five Presidents came out in 2016. It had been on the bestseller list when it first came out, but now three years later, it wasn't. All of a sudden that week, it went to like number one on the Amazon bestseller list, beating nice. all the other books because Mike Rowe told everybody to buy it. Oh, that's fantastic. Mike's a great guy. Uh, he's just one of my favorites. What, um, uh, where were you in a bar that you happened to sit down next to Mike Rowe? Sanford in, uh, well, Belvedere, California. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. He's up there too. That's right. That's right. That's amazing. <laughs> what a story. Oh, incredible. And, uh, you know, I want to finish, up there's this the line that you start not start not the first line but in the first page or so uh and then you finish with a very similar line at the end and it's something i thought a lot about um as well and uh and you say right here let me find it real quick boom, boom, boom. on november 22nd 1963 three shots were fired in dallas and the world stopped for four days for an entire generation it was the end of the age of innocence and I thought about that a lot because it really does seem, looking back, that that was a turning point. And uh, you know, trust in government uh, took a dive 
after that, um, it, it really the country's never been the same. And uh, and I often think what would have happened if uh, if he had survived. Um, what would the country look like today? Um, but uh, but it really does seem like that was a turning point in our in our history. And you were right there um, for it. Um, are you hopeful for, for the future going forward? Uh, and in all those years from 1963 up to, to today, cause it is easy well, to look I'm at that date. Too, uh, yeah. I'm always hopeful that the thing will, things will improve that uh, this in, in this country, we'll finally get our act together and act like we're supposed to act and do things we're supposed to do and, uh, get on with life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And uh, be, be as happy as the people up there in Kansas City are because of, they're winning in the Super Bowl. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, well, I want to thank you both for taking this time. It means so much to me. It is such an honor to sit down with both of you. Um, so thank you for taking the time. And thank you for taking the time that goes in to writing these books because it is a lot of time. I, I know now. Uh, <laughs> a much greater appreciation for it now. Uh, I just turned in my sixth one uh, just about two days ago, finished some edits on it. So, oh, uh, congratulations. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Congratulations. Thank you. So, yeah, jumping right into number seven. But uh, but it does take a lot of work. And uh, what you've done, it's really a gift to the to the nation. So thank you both so much for, for doing that. Thank, thank you, Jack. You. Really thank appreciate you very it. Much. All right. Appreciate your uh, you guys take care. You too. All right, Navy Federal Credit Union. Those dreaded finances. Managing your money can be hard. They're competing goals, growing savings, paying debt, managing everyday and unexpected expenses, plus a little having fun. Navy Federal Credit Union takes the legwork out of saving and investing with a variety of choices. Want to supersize your savings earnings? They're offering some of their highest rates in 10 years. And whether you choose savings or investments, you can make it easier by automating. Plus their website has articles, tips, and tools that make complicated subjects easier to understand. I've been a member since 1996, my first year in the Navy. For those watching, you can see my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. And they have been awesome to me and my family over all these years. So check out Navy Federal's supercharged rates at navyfederal.org slash save and invest. Saving products insured by NCUA. Investment options are available through Navy Federal Investment Services and are not insured by NCUA. Check them out, navyfederal.org. Let's talk about Aimpoint. Proven, reliable, trusted. The original Red Dot since 1975. Originally developed for hunting purposes, their sights were adopted by the U.S. Army in 1997. I've been using them for over 20 years now. Absolutely love Aimpoint. If you go to my Instagram, Jack Carr USA, you can scroll down and see a few pictures of me running an Aimpoint in Afghanistan in the early days. What I want to talk about right now is the Acro P. Two, right here. Look at this thing. That is solid. So Aimpoint revolutionized red dot pistol optics with the Acro P1. Now the Acro P2 represents the next generation of pistol mounted optics. It features a brighter, more efficient LED emitter coupled with a higher capacity battery to provide over five years of constant on use. That's right, over five years. It's designed to 
withstand shock, vibration, and extreme temperatures. This thing is solid. Absolutely love it. I'm going to get a few of these things, and I love it so much. It is in my upcoming novel, Only the Dead. So I have big plans for this. Awesome. Also want to mention the Comp M5 M5S right here. So this thing is awesome. And what I really love about this is that it has a triple A battery. So you can find triple A's pretty much anywhere. So that is a huge advantage in my opinion on this right here. It features battle proven aim point comp series now in a lightweight compact model. It takes that triple A battery and that resolves a lot of travel restriction issues and it's compatible with aimpoint three by and six by magnifiers one of which i have right there and all generations of night vision devices and is compatible with multiple mounting solutions just awesome finally the comp m4 m4 S. it features professional quality red dot optic for use under extremely harsh conditions. The U.S. Army has chosen a member of the Aimpoint Comp M4 series of sites as their M68 CCO close combat optic for over two decades. It's powered by a single AA battery for over 80,000 hours, eight years of continuous use, and over 500,000 hours in the night vision setting. It's compatible with Aimpoint 3x magnifiers and all generations night vision during the month of march receive a free signed copy of the devil's hand in hardcover with your purchase of any aimpoint comp series or micro t2 optic visit aimpoint.info slash jack car and use code jack car j-a-c-k-c-a-r-r check them out Today's episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink, the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300, available in salted caramel, vanilla balm, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that'll supercharge your day. Ready to drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick and shopping with Black Rifle Coffee helps give back to the veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at blackriflecoffee.com or grab an ice cold can at a convenience store near you. You can stock up at blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code danger close 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash DangerClose for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, thank you to everyone who has subscribed to the Danger Close podcast over the last three years. It is sincerely appreciated. And right here, this is a plaque from YouTube for passing 100,000 subscribers. So, Thank you so much that if you that you have chosen to trust me with your time is something that I do not take lightly and uh, why I try to put so much thought into everything that I do. So thank you so much. And uh, as a way to say thank you, I'm doing a giveaway the first Monday of every month on my Instagram. So that is at Jack Carr USA. 
So the first Monday of every month, there'll be a different giveaway. All you have to do is comment below and be following, and then you can win whatever that giveaway is for the month. So uh, go check that out at Jack Carr USA. And that's just a way to say thank you for subscribing to the podcast, for reading the books, for watching the Terminal List on Amazon Prime Video, uh, getting the merch, engaging on social channels. So uh, thank you so much. Once again, at Jack Carr USA on Instagram. Go there first Monday of every month for a chance to win. All right. What else? Look at this thing. Bam. MCX Spear LT from SIG right here. I am super excited about this rifle and looking forward to building it out. This thing is awesome. So check that out. I'm probably going to put a, probably a Tango Optic from SIG up here, backup irons, a sling from Viking Tactics, Kyle Lamb's sling, and then a uh, Surefire light up here. And then that thing should be good to go. And then I'll get out to Thunder Ranch with this and go see Clinton Heidi Smith out there, have them put me through the paces and put this thing to the test. So I'm looking forward to getting back out there. If you have not been to Thunder Ranch, I highly recommend you get out there on the range amazing facility, incredible instructors, and uh, maybe I'll see you out there. What else here? All right. Black Rifle Coffee Company. Thank you for fueling my life. Awesome. And what is this right here? Check this thing out. Gunstone Creations. Look at that. That is super cool. And that's Tori over there at Gunstone Creations. And you can follow him on Instagram at gunstone underscore creations or go to gunstonecreations.com. But look at that thing. Even the card, the back of the card here, you can tell right there. That is great. What incredible photos. So check that out. Awesome. Go get yourself a blade. Uh, and look at that. Stickers too. So thank you so much for sending that. It means a lot. Appreciate it. And some energy. Yep. Protect. P-R-O-T-E-K-T. My buddy Nick Norris, who has been on the podcast before, former SEAL. This is his company right here. This is the energy. And this thing is not only does it give you energy, it's also very good. And I had this yesterday because we were at the range. I was shooting through title pages to my upcoming novel, Only the Dead, which hits shelves on May 16th. And I shoot through those title pages, send them back to Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster binds them in to the books. And then those books get sent to independent bookstores. And I'll uh, be posting about it on social channels and it'll be on the website as well when those go live. And uh, I do that because it gives people a reason to go to those small independent bookstores rather than hitting the easy button with a big box store or Amazon. So uh, I'm going to send some business their way. And uh, the only places that you can get the shot through copies of Only the Dead will be those independent bookstores. And there'll be a list of them on my website when I do that. That's officialjackcar.com. And that is coming soon. And this is pretty sweet. This watch right here. So Forster, so it's F-O-R-S-C-H-E-R, watch.com. Um, go check those guys out over there. You can get in touch with them through their website and follow both the European side of things and the U.S. side of things. That's Sam here in the U.S., Emmett over in Ireland. And they made this really cool uh, mil-sub homage piece. And it is awesome. Has some James Bond vibes here. You can go uh, also follow Commando Bond on Instagram and go to commandobond.com for some James Bond military history. And he talks a little more about this homage piece right here. But they even went so far to find the original band manufacturer, Phoenix. And this is just a really cool 
piece. So uh, thank you guys so much, Sam and Emmett. Uh, really means a lot to me. I'll take a cool picture of this thing and put it on Instagram uh, soon as well. So uh, I'm just fired up about this. Thank you, guys. What else? Just talked about Kyle Lamb. So this is a hat that was made with part of his uniform from Eagles and Angels. And you can go check out Eagles and Angels. Uh, they are at eaglesandangelsltd.com. But if you just put Eagles and Angels in, it'll probably pop up. So they do uh, do hats and a certain percentage of the proceeds go to whatever veteran charity that uh, that veteran wants it to go to. So uh, this one is uh, Kyle Lambs and really cool. I'm so glad that I that I got this. So uh, check them out, follow them and uh, uh, give them some support it's for a good cause. What else? All right. Tactical engagement. So they make these. These are on the website, too. These are uh, pretty cool. And they made me some whiskey stones right here. So check these out. And they have the cross tomahawks on there. Got the bone frog on there. I don't know if they sell these or not. I don't think so. But um, they might sell the stones. Pretty cool. So thank you guys for sending those along. I'm going to give them a try here very soon. This weekend, in fact. So... And on the website also, there's some new patches out there. If you're a patch person, there we go. And if you're a Land Cruiser person, check that out. Nice. And then stickers also, corresponding stickers. If you are a sticker person, those are on the website now as well. So there, Rafe's Defender right there. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff on there that is new, that has launched, that uh, you can go check out. Yep, another Land Cruiser. And yeah, looks familiar. All right. I think that is everything. Thank you so much. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My upcoming novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this May and is available for pre-order right now. To find out more about Clint Hill and Lisa McCuban Hill, you can go to their website, clinthillsecretservice.com, and then Lisa's is Lisa McCuban, that is L-I-S-A-M-C-C, ubin.com. You can also follow them on Instagram at Lisa, L-I-S-A-M-C-C-U-B-I-N. And then Clint's is at Clint Hill underscore SS for secret service. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can click in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get podcasts and be sure to pick up all four of these books five days in November, five presidents, Mrs. Kennedy and me and my travels with Mrs. Kennedy. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.